Well, here's what I'm going to ask you to do this morning. Take your Bibles, turn open to Romans 8. And if you will look in your bulletin, you should have a sheet that says the buzzwords of Romans 8, 29, and 30. If for some reason you only picked up one bulletin and you need more sheets, if you wouldn't mind to let me know, that'd be fantastic. Yes? Okay. You, you mind? Thank you. Nobody else may have showed up, but Zach showed up, right? So you know that everybody's going to get one. Just kidding. It's good. Romans chapter 8. We are looking something that I'm calling the golden chain of glorification. And the reason why I'm calling it the the, the golden chain of glorification is because it is often referred to as the golden chain of redemption. And that is not what it is. My desire is to hopefully speak humbly and lovingly about some of these subjects. But I will go ahead and tell you that because I've, I've studied, because of personal turmoil and dilemmas at this idea that only certain people are chosen to go to heaven when they die, everybody else is damned without exception, and there's no possibility of hope for them, that has really struck a chord with me in my ministry as a pastor having to deal with it. Um, and so I've taught a lot against that view. I've had to do a lot of extensive study. And I've also had to write in print against that view a lot. And it's caused me mainly backlash. Because if you don't agree with what a majority of people think is accepted, then you obviously must not be biblical, you must not be orthodox, you must be a heretic, those types of things. And so the reason why we are slowing the cart down and going uh, at a snail's pace with this whole thing, and however many other images I can throw in your head as I'm trying to explain this, The reason why we're doing that is because these concepts are so important. Last week, we looked at foreknowledge. In fact, let's let's look at the verse real quick, and let's read it so that we understand. 28, 29, and 30 is what we're going to focus on. I'll give you a brief summary of the chapter so that we will identify things that we've talked about previously so we get our bearings of what the context is. Verse 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Last week, we looked at the word foreknow or foreknown or foreknowledge, however you want to say it, and we saw that it was the Greek word prognosko. And when we looked at all the instances that it occurs in the New Testament, one thing that we found was is it means to know something beforehand. And that's all it means. It doesn't mean that God foreordained anything. In fact, the idea of foreordination is completely foreign to the makeup of the words, gnosko means to understand something in an intimate way or to have firsthand knowledge of something. But the prefix pro means before. So the idea that we're dealing with is to know something beforehand. Now, I knew that some of you were going to be at church before you showed up. Some of them didn't show up. 
I was wrong in my prognosco, okay? But we, we make a very serious mistake when we push the ways that God works with people as told in Scripture beyond what the passage tells us. Now, I have struggled a lot, and I know it's from the enemy. Are we just making mountains out of molehills on this situation? Do we really need to go this slow through everything and take a look at what the Bible has to say about it? Yes, we do. Because it affects how you think about God. It affects what you think about God. And it affects whether or not you have any urgency, as we all should, about sharing the gospel. Because here's what we find with the word predestined. If there are certain people that have already been marked out to go to heaven, does it really matter if I share the gospel with them? I mean, they're already marked out. God's going to save them, right? So what do I have to do? Nothing. Why? Because it's all God's will. And it only matters what God's going to do. And so therefore, I'm just going to default to God and let God handle it. Because let's be honest, letting God handle those situations sounds like a really Christian thing to do, right? I'm just going to let go and let God. You don't let go and let God when people are concerned. God works through you in order to reach people with the gospel. Faith comes through hearing, which means somebody's got to say it, and hearing the word of Christ. That's how people can believe and be saved. They've got to hear. Somebody's got to go. So here's what we've looked at in Romans 8. Romans 8 is about glorification. In Romans 8, Paul wants to say, the glory that is at hand is incredible. But you, when you live the Christ life, or more specifically, you let Christ live through you, you're going to find that there's all types of friction and opposition in this world because the world loves to operate apart from Christ. The world hates the Bible. I was talking with Alex. By the way, this is Alex right here. <laughs> See, everybody's friendly. Alex needs to polish up on his coffee skills, but other than that, he's a pretty good guy. Alex was reading to me this morning about something he was looking into with the church, the underground church in China. And the fact that they had gotten some Bibles, a missionary come in and gotten some Bibles and passed them around. And he noticed that when he passed it around, this one lady turned around and she took the New Testament that she had been given and she gave it to somebody else. It's like she passed it by. And the missionary approached her and said, why did, why did you give a copy of the scriptures away? I brought them here for you. Why'd you give them away? Well, what, what you gave us here was actually 2 Peter 3. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. I've already got that chapter memorized. Well, how did you memorize that chapter? Well, when I was in prison for my faith, we were passing around scraps of paper. And you don't want to get caught with that scrap of paper, so you memorize it quick. And then you pass it on. Well, what happens if we got caught meeting like we are? You would be deported within 24 hours, and everyone in this room would spend three years in jail. Does it sound like that we're just going to default to God and let him save whoever he wants to save? That sounds like the dumbest approach in the world. Now, I can say that experientially. But the fact is, is we have to prove it biblically in order for it to make sense and convince us. So when Paul's talking about glorification, it makes no sense for him to go back and say, here's how people are saved. That makes no sense. And we'll wrap up and give you what I believe this is talking about at the end, and I think you'll find it very convincing. So here we go. We're looking at the word. 
predestined. Let me give you the two views, the two major views. By the way, I'll go ahead and tell you, I think both of them are wrong. First view is the Calvinist view. Originate, a lot of people say, well, this originated with John Calvin. You actually find that his predecessor, his name is Theodore Beza. He's actually the one who more crystallized and refined some of Calvin's teachings. But Calvin got all of his teachings from Augustine, and Augustine is the father of Catholic theology. So if this tells you where all this is bound up in, there it is. Uh, another thing to remember this is no one up until the time of Augustine, around 400 AD, no one believed that people were certain people were chosen and selected to go to heaven when they die. No, no one of the church fathers ever believed that. No one even ever touched anything like that. But because Augustine was brought up in fatalistic cults, he brought that fatalistic approach into his Bible interpretation, and this is how we got what we got now that we have to deal with. Calvinist view. Calvin defined predestination as God's eternal decree by which he determined by himself whatever he willed to happen with every person, creating some persons for eternal life and others for eternal damnation. Calvin held to an infralapsarian model of predestination. Now, don't let that mess you up, but if you want to impress some people, there it is. And here's what it means, in which God first understands humans as fallen and therefore lacking the mental faculty to accomplish spiritual good. In other words, you're so depraved and you're so sinful in your mind, you can't do anything good before God. Now, I would agree with that. I'm so messed up from being not just a sinner, but born into sin, that sin is my very constitution, not just the actions and thoughts that I have, that, yeah, I can't do anything to merit acceptance with God whatsoever. I've got no problem with that. Then God, by, then God actively decrees to save some and to damn others in a double predestination. Now, here's what will happen. You'll talk to somebody who's a Calvinist and say, yeah, but I don't believe that. I believe that he only chooses some. Well, if he has the power and he only chooses some, you can't tell me that he didn't damn the rest of them without hope. He could have saved everybody if he has the power. Why didn't he? And let me ask you a question. If God has any claims on love whatsoever, and he doesn't save everybody because all the power is sitting in his control, what does that say about God? Can we trust anything about him actually loving people? It's a mess. So here's a quote from Calvin himself in his Institutes. God is said to set apart those whom he adopts for salvation. It were most absurd to say that he admits others fortuitously, or that they by their industry, their own working, acquire what election alone confers on a few. Those, therefore, whom God passes by, who he doesn't choose, he reprobates. And that for no other cause, but because he is pleased to exclude them from the inheritance which he predestines to his children. It makes God happy to send people to hell. Is that true? Because I read Ezekiel 18 and it tells me that God takes no pleasure in the death of any person. Wicked or not, 2 Peter 3, 9 is a good one as well. We have all these mental gymnastics to prove this. One of the greatest ones is, well, when that says the word world, it actually means the elect who aren't saved yet. The word world in the New Testament never means the elect. Not one time. Well, when it ever, you, go, you, know, you know how we talk about the word all means all? Well, when it says all there, he actually means some. Now, I don't know about you, but somebody's got a theology that operates in unbelief, and that's a problem. Now, the flip side of that is the Arminian side. Mitch, if we could go to that real quick. The Arminian side says, Arminius affirmed that election is based on God's foreknowledge of those who would believe in Christ 
and not just believe, persevere in faith throughout their lifetimes. Arminius expressed his own understanding of predestination under four divine decrees. Now, why they're called four divine decrees, I don't understand. But here's what he says. Number one, God decreed to create the world and to appoint Christ as redeemer, mediator, and savior to pay for the sins of the world. Can we agree with that? Absolutely. There's no problem there. Praise God for it. I'm so thankful I have a savior. Thank you, God, for the savior. Number two, God decreed to save everyone who would receive Christ and continue in their belief. Stop for a second. Where's the work? Notice that. Notice that the work doesn't stay on the cross and resurrection. The question is, how are you doing? Are you on fire for the Lord at this moment, or are you wavering in your faith? Well, if you're wavering in your faith, you might want to stop and consider whether or not you're really saved. And because you have no assurance, you have what we like to call schizophrenia. Because that's what happens. Am I in? Am I out? Am I in? Am I out? I feel in. I feel out now. There's some days I don't feel saved. There's some days I don't feel saved. Thank God it's not based on me. I'm saved because of the blood of Christ, not because of the failure to live up to righteousness, because I'm trusting myself rather than him in any given moment. Thank God that's not the case. Number three, God decreed to give all future persons the means, like the word of God, the sacraments, and so forth, to believe in Christ, making a grace available to all. We agree with that? Yes. God has made his grace available to all. Praise God. Number four, God decreed to save particular persons based on his foreknowledge of who would believe and, there it is again, persevere. It ultimately rests on you. Now, stop for a second and think about this before we get into the biblical part of it. Each one of these situations is really contingent upon how well you're doing. I mean, think about it. If you're not living for the Lord 150% all the time of your life, not having any down times, not having any bouts of depression, you know, and they'll even tell you, you know, hey, it's, it's okay, you can waver just a little bit, but you'll come back in the end. You'll persevere to the end. How do you know you're really saved? How do you have any sort of security whatsoever? How can you really trust when Jesus says eternal life? If either one of these sides are true, what you actually have is conditional life. And that's if the Calvinist is true and you're really living for it, you might be able to say, yes, I'm one of the elect. If the Arminian view is true, you can say, yeah, I'm saved right now, but I might lose it by tonight. Some of you lost your salvation whenever the Packers lost that game. You know? I mean, think about it. There are some things that are just goofy in this world that set us off. Now, here's another thing that's interesting. Um, Let's go ahead and go to, to, uh, Mitch, if you wouldn't mind. Go to the Olson quote real quick. I'm sorry, not the Olson quote. Forgive me. Let's go to what the word is. Here's the word for you to write down on your paper. Pro orizzo is what it is. Pro orizzo. Uh, in fact, that that's not right. I actually, I accidentally typed the P instead of the O. It should be P-R-O-O-R-I-Z-O, long O at the end. So P-R-O-O-R-I-Z-O. And this means to limit in advance. Now, here's the reason why I gave you the Strong's numbers is because a lot of you in this room took hermeneutics. And so you can easily go home, pull your Strong's concordance, and look up this number and see plainly what it says in there. 
Now, I'm also going to tell you this. A lot of the people who write those works are Calvinists or Arminian, okay? And so there's going to be a little bit of theological creep that comes in to see some of these things. Let's go to the Bible and let's see what it actually has to say. So to limit in advance or to limit or mark out beforehand or to design definitely beforehand or to ordain beforehand or to predestine or to come to a decision beforehand, to decide beforehand, to determine ahead of time or to decide upon ahead of time. Now, you don't have to worry about getting all that down. Mitch does an excellent job of making sure it's on the website later. You can check it out. But but here's one thing that will really help us. Go to the next one, Mitch. Something that will really help us sly in changing the word there. Thank you for doing that. This is a word that's derived from two Greek words. Now, this helped us with prognosco. Now, watch this. Pro, aha, same thing. What does pro mean? Don't look. What's pro mean? Before. We know that just from what we looked at last week. So we got the idea of meaning for or in front of or prior, before. You got a strong number there for you. But here's what's interesting is the word horizo. Okay? And horizo is the idea to mark out a bound or to appoint something or to decree or to specify. This is where we get the English word horizon from. It came from this Greek word. And the reason is, is because when you look out and you see the horizon and you've got the edge of what you see as the earth and the sun is going down on that, you say there's a boundary there. There's been an appointed marking there of which the sun is going down as it goes around the curvature of the earth. Everybody got that? Now, here's what's interesting about this. Go ahead and go to the Olson quote now. Gordon Olson is a Greek grammarian who lives over in Lynchburg, Virginia. Here's what he says. This is a very rare word, and there is a serious question as to how it should actually be translated. It never occurred in the Septuagint Old Testament. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So when you had people in the culture because of Alexander the Great were moving away from speaking the Hebrew language and they said, we've got to have a copy of the scriptures in our common vernacular so that we can understand it. You had a guy, a bunch of guys, 70 guys that were commissioned to take the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament and translate them all into Greek. And this word never occurs once in the Old Testament. They never felt the need whatsoever to translate anything pro or itso, not once. So it's completely absent from the Old Testament. And it's found only once in classical Greek literature before the New Testament. No one was really using this word at all. It's only found one time. Now here's the next part. And a few times in secular Greek from the 3rd to 5th centuries A.D. That means from 200 A.D. unto 400 A.D., You barely ever found it. Nobody was using this, which means it's unique to Paul. That means that Paul is using it for a reason. Now, if I were just to put the words together, I would come up with the idea to mark beforehand or to appoint beforehand or to have a boundary beforehand. Seems reasonable to me to see it that way. So what does the Bible say? Let's open to our first instance where we find it. Because actually this word doesn't occur very much in the New Testament. Whole doctrines are built around it, but you rarely see it. How about Acts chapter 2? Acts chapter 2 is fun because it messes a lot of people up real bad. So let's go to the fun one first. Acts chapter 2. And I want you to look at verses 22 and 23. Now, if you're familiar with Acts 2, this is when Peter 
stands up and he preaches this sermon at Pentecost and you're getting ready to have all these people that respond to the gospel and the birth of the church is getting ready to take place in Acts 2.37, okay? So leading up to that in his sermon, he says something very interesting. Here's what he says, verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now, here's the reason why I wanted to sort this out first. Does anybody have a different translation where you see the word predetermined in the New American Standard? Does anybody have something different? What's it say? Deliberate. Definite. Deliberate. Definite. That doesn't sound like to mark only certain people out beforehand, does it? Deliberate. Definite. Anybody got anything different? Here's the reason why. Because this word translated predetermined, or in some translations predestined, is not the word prohoritzo. It's actually just horizo, which means to mark, or to have a boundary, or to a point. What is it telling you? In God's prognosco, or I'm sorry, it's not prognosco actually, uh, it pro- prognosis his omniscience, his wisdom, uh, his intention uh, to know something beforehand is also translated there for foreknowledge. In other words, for his understanding of what was going to come, he set a mark on something. And what did he set a mark on? Read the text and see what it says. This man, who's the man? Jesus, very good. If you're not awake, come on, get awake. We got to have revival today. This man delivered over by the marked out plan And foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. What was appointed here? Christ's death. Does it surprise you that because God knew that sin was going to be a reality in the world, that he needed to send a Savior? No, we have our entire doctrine of of Christianity based on the fact that God has promised since Genesis 3.15, that he was going to send forward a Savior that would crush the head of the serpent and liberate his people. We see it all over the place. Is this surprising? Hopefully not. But what do we see? The crucifixion of Jesus was a marked out event. He had to die for the sins of the world. Does that mean that God forced Pilate's hand? Does that mean that God was behind all the shenanigans of Herod making him sin? No. Does that mean that whenever Israel was screaming, crucify him, crucify him, and they were just dripping with anger, was that really God behind all that, kind of just goosing people along? No. No. You think that God is smart enough to look down through the portals of time and see how people will react to his son and establish that moment? See, it's not surprising. We can't get all worked up in what all these famous preachers and theologians think and forsake what the Bible says. Let's turn to our next instance, Acts 4. Just a couple chapters over. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 23. And this is where we finally engage the actual word. I think that the New American Standard translated predetermined in chapter 223 wrong. It should just be determined or appointed. 
the fact that he did it. But the reason why I want you to see this is because anytime that you're dealing with the idea of predetermination or predestination, ask yourself the question, where are we going? What's the destination? I mean, if you're predestined to be somewhere, you'd like to know what was decided to be there, right? Where are we going in this whole thing? Anybody ever get in your car and just not predestined anywhere you're going? You're just going to end up wherever? No, that never happens. You are going to Walmart, and you are going to face that crowd. And you are preparing yourself because you've predestined yourself to be there. Here we go. Acts chapter 4, verse 23. And this is when Peter and John have been released after giving an awesome testimony before the Pharisees. And so they come back amongst the church there, and the church decides the first thing they're going to do with Peter and John's release is they're going to pray to God and worship him for it. So watch what happens here. Verse 23. When they had been released... They went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Notice they start acknowledging him as the creator. And it says here, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, why do the Gentiles rage? And the people devised futile things. The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ, his anointed one. And he's quoting from Psalm 2. And this is fantastic because that's what's known as a messianic psalm, and it's pretty much talking about the futility of people trying to come against a divine king is the idea. And so they're quoting that here. They're applying that in this situation. Verse 27, for truly... In the city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, now pay attention to the people, Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, there's people number three, and the people of Israel, number four. Everybody get that? Herod, Pilate, Gentiles, Jews. Everybody see that? Yes? Okay. Respond. Talk to me. Why wouldn't you want to talk to me? Don't hurt my feelings. Okay, so here we are. Verse 28. Notice this, they were gathered to do whatever your hand and your purpose prohorizo to occur, predestined to occur. Does that mean that God forced their hands in evil? No. Does it mean that the death of Jesus Christ was an event that was determined or appointed beforehand? It does. Before it took place, God had already planned it. Now watch this so that we don't corrupt the character of God. Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur, and now, Lord, watch this, take note of their threats. Now stop. If God is responsible for killing Jesus, and he chose to incite sin in people and use their sin for his ultimate glory to get his purposes accomplished, as a Calvinist would tell you, and therefore he actually promotes sin, and sin becomes a necessary part of God getting his work done. Never understood that. But if that's the case, then why doesn't the church in their prayer say, and God, you are to be praised for the sin that brought this great event about? How come they don't do that? How come? Here's the reason why. Because that's stupid. Let's just be honest. Because what it does is it takes a holy God who defines what is good and evil and says, well, there's a little bit of evil in there. Everybody ever seen that Chinese symbol, the yin-yang? Everybody seen that? The white with the little black dot and then the black, the little white dot. And what does that communicate? I used to have that on my car in high school just to show you how awesome I was. I was so groovy. It was amazing. But anyway, 
What does that mean? In all good, in all good, there's a little bit of evil, and in all evil, there's a little bit of good. Do you realize that that's a pagan mindset for how to deal with eternity? And whenever we talk about, well, yeah, God wanted to get in there and use this sin. Can God take sinful actions from people and turn them into good situations? Yes. Sin doesn't threaten him. Evil doesn't threaten him. He doesn't look at it and go, oh my gosh, we got to panic because I don't know what to do. And he doesn't have to get in there and meticulously control everything as if he's not going to be prepared for the outcome. Does everybody see how that hits against God knowing everything? But what do we see here? God pre-appointed this event to take place. God knew all the parties that were going to be involved and how they would respond. He knows every possible avenue and action that will ever take place past, present, and future. Time is not a restrictor to him. So notice, this has nothing to do with predestining only certain people to go to heaven. It's talking about the event of Christ's crucifixion being appointed in time. Does everybody see that? Okay, two verses down. Only got a few more to go. Let's turn here to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Is this helping everybody? I don't know what kind of background you've come from. You might think, good grief, this is dumb. I don't know. You, you, might, you might not care for this at all. But I hope that it has some sort of impact on you that you understand that sometimes what we've been taught about God is not the truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now Paul spends his time speaking with the Corinthians about the importance of the crucifixion of Christ. And he talks about how there's a way that the world thinks and there's a way that God has set up things because Christ is the truth. And these are two computing, excuse me, competing worldviews that are going on. And he says something very interesting starting in verse 6 of chapter 2. He says, yet... We do speak wisdom, because remember, he claims to say, I've known nothing amongst you except Christ and him crucified. But now after that, he moves it a step forward. He says, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are what? Mature. Those who are perfect, some of it says. And the idea there is those who have grown up in the faith, who have walked with the Lord for a time, who have experienced intimacy and are now in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Amongst them, we're talking more in depth about what took place with the cross of Christ. Now, you've got a lost person, and you get the opportunity to share Jesus with them. What about Jesus are you going to share with them? I mean, is the virgin birth important? Yes, it is. But do you have to believe the virgin birth in order to go to heaven when you die? No, not necessarily. That's something that people learn later. They don't have to have a perfect theological picture of Jesus, but what they do need to understand is that they've sinned against a holy God, that there is no hope in themselves, and there's nothing they could ever do that would merit righteousness before him. And so, therefore, they need a Savior. And the Savior became the Savior the moment that he died on the cross for the sins of the world, but he didn't stay dead. God, by his power, raised him from the grave. He is alive forevermore. If you believe in him, you will be saved. You have eternal life. Or God says it this way. God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ what? Died for us. It sounds pretty, pretty pinpoint about what the, what the crux of the gospel is, is the death and resurrection of Jesus. But when you talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus and you start to get into the fact that, oh, we died with him. 
and we were made alive with him. These are things that are deeper than just your gospel presentation. Because now that starts to help people recognize I have this brand new identity and I can actually live a supernatural life because of the Holy Spirit dwelling in me. Can you successfully share the gospel with somebody without letting them know that the Holy Spirit will indwell them? You can. That's something that happens at the moment they believe. That's something that they need to know, especially after they believe. But that's why discipleship and evangelism are so important and they're also two separate things. Does everybody see that? Yes? Everybody with me? Okay. So now, We speak wisdom to those who are mature about the cross. And notice what he says here. Yeah, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. It's not a temporal knowledge. It's not just a a, a here, here today, gone tomorrow type knowledge. That's not what we're talking about. We've got eternal things to invest in people who are maturing in their faith. He says here, verse 7, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. What is a mystery? The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our what? Glory. This is a mature knowledge that God appointed beforehand that would help in the glorification of the saints. Does everybody see this? If you are someone who has come to faith in Christ, but you never grow in your discipleship, It's very little, few and far between. And understand this, if that's you or if I'm speaking to you right now and you're like, oh man, I can identify with this. That's not totally your fault. Churches in America, by and large, have dropped the ball in discipling people and getting them ingrained with the word of God. It's happening everywhere. And shame on us, like we've got something else to do rather than to build people up into sound doctrine so they can live godly lives so that Jesus Christ can be seen to this world through them. That's ridiculous to think that we would do anything else. But for those who are maturing, God has actually pre-appointed this knowledge to develop them, to give them a greater experience in glorification. Does everybody see? To our glory. Look what he says after that. Verse 8. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. Now watch this. For, here's your explanation, if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Uh Uh-oh, you know what that's telling you? It's telling you that if Pilate and Herod and the Gentiles and the Jews would have understood anything about the eternal ramifications of crucifying Jesus Christ at that moment, if they would have had a glimpse into that spiritual knowledge that God has pre-appointed for those who are maturing, if they would have even got a grasp of it, they would have held up their hands and said, stop, stop what you're doing. We can't do this to this guy. Do you not know who he is? What did Pilate say? He responded to Jesus by saying, what is truth? Now, I would have loved it if Jesus would have said, you're looking at it. I think that would have been great but I also didn't write the Bible. But think about what he's saying here. Paul is giving us a glimpse into an alternate decision. If these people would have known what took place at the cross, how the blood of God himself would be on their hands, can you imagine being in the lake of fire and that's on your rap sheet? Why are you here? Well, I didn't believe in the Son of God. I actually crucified him. I actually gave the orders to have him dead. Think about it, guys. 
If they would have known what they were doing at that time, the full ramifications, spiritually speaking, that the mature understand, they would have never touched him. They would have put a police don't cross line around him and ran the other direction. Nothing to do with it. This wisdom was pre-appointed for the mature for our glory. Does it say anything about only choosing certain people to go to heaven? Not a thing. Everybody see that? Now here's what's interesting about this. We've only got two more instances to look at where this occurs. Everybody turn to Ephesians. Gosh, I love the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. If you have your Wednesday nights free and you're not playing Parcheesi down at the community center, you're more than welcome to come at 6.30 and join us because we are currently charting the book of Ephesians on Wednesday night from 6.30 until 7.45, and it's a good time. We have a good group. If you want to see what we're doing, you just walk through these doors right here and look at the whiteboard on your left. It's pretty heavy. It's awesome. We've had a good time doing it. I've had a good time doing it. I don't know about everybody else, but I loved it. Ephesians, number one. Anybody know who Paul's writing to here? Are they believers or unbelievers? They're believers. We're writing to people who already know Christ, okay? They're already saved. So that automatically helps you in your thinking moving forward. Look at verse 3. Here we go. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. Now stop. You want to pay attention to that. Because Paul's writing, and he's writing to Christians, and he's saying this is something that's true of both of us. It's not Paul's greater than them or they're greater than Paul. There's a blessing that goes around all of them. So notice, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, when you get saved, you automatically are moved in a spiritual U-Haul to a brand new location. And that is known as in Christ. You are no longer positionally in the world. You are thrust forward into a grand and glorious standing, a brand new location of which you are accepted unconditionally because when God sees you, he sees you through Christ. You don't have to live up to some standard. You don't have to accomplish some expectation. You don't have to give a rip about people's opinions. All that matters is the fact that Jesus died for you, you've responded in belief to that truth, and now you are jettisoned into a glorious position, a location now that is called in Christ. And when Jesus, and when God sees you, he sees you through his Jesus glasses because you are covered and you are righteous. No sin, no problem. You are justified in his sight, declared righteous. Everybody with me? That's a good place to be in Christ. So now look at verse 4, because here's where everybody gets all messed up. Notice it says here, just as he chose us before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Is that what it says? Who said yes? Raise your hand. Ah, Roxanne, liar, liar, pants on fire. Good job. Is that what it says? Pay attention to it. Look what it says. Just as he chose us, stop. Where were we when he chose us? Uh Uh-oh, stop just as he chose us in him. In other words, for you to be chosen, you have to be in him to be chosen. It doesn't say, and you were chosen to be in him. It says, just as he chose you in him. When did he make that decision? Before the foundation of the world. How could he do that? He's God. Now, here's what's interesting. Choosing, which is also a synonym of election or elect, You can use them interchangeably, choosing, chosen. Some people, because it's a special situation, choice ones of God, they're the choice ones. 
This is a choice steak I'm having this evening, that kind of thing. It's a special steak. Those are used interchangeably with elect. And notice what he's saying here. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? Why did he choose us to go to heaven when we die? Look what he says. That we, Paul and his audience, already Christians, already in Christ, would be holy and blameless before him in love. Now stop for a second. How do we know this isn't talking about justification? Because when you believed in Christ, weren't you already holy and blameless before him in your position because he sees you through Jesus? I mean, isn't that the whole reason why we deal with this heavy word, justification? And we talk about the instantaneous thing, the event that happened at the moment that somebody responds to faith in Christ? Absolutely. I kind of like that people aren't here so I can walk around. Absolutely. So why would he choose us to be the things that we already are in his presence? Here's the reason why. Everybody see the two words, before him. Everybody see that? When will the Christian appear before him? The judgment seat of Christ. And the judgment seat, the Bema seat, has everything to do with how we stewarded ourselves as Christians while on earth. It has nothing to do with our eternal standing. In other words, when I believe in Christ, instantaneously I'm brought into his presence and I'm seen as spotless before him because it's through Christ. But now the question is, how will I live for him? Well, here's the great thing. God has actually chosen me and you and Paul and the Ephesians and everybody else who would ever believe in Christ because we are in him to a glorious calling. And that calling that we have been called to is to be holy and blameless before him. Now, what happens is, is our minds experience somebody driving 60 miles an hour and throwing on the emergency brake when we see that period at the end of before him. So here's something we need to know grammatically. And if you pick up any commentary worth its weight in gold, you'll find this. From verses 3 to verses 14 in Ephesians 1 is a run-on sentence. Paul just could not find the time to stop writing to throw in some punctuation for us. And so all the punctuation that is supplied for you has been done so by the translators. They've put it in there where they think it ought to go. What does that tell you? It tells you very much that in love is actually part of that same thought. So now think of it this way. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Anybody want to know where the prime avenue is of which you exercise your love relationship as Christ has loved you? It's called the church, the body of Christ. And what's interesting about Ephesians is it's written to a church, not a person. Wouldn't it be great if we were holy and blameless in our love for one another? That there was no reason why we would have any kind of despising of someone, we felt like we were in competition with our brothers and sisters where we thought sinfully against somebody because she's got better shoes than I have. Anything like that? I mean, there are silly things that divide the body of Christ. But no, he says, you were actually chosen for a purpose, Christian. You were chosen to reflect the love of Christ in the local assembly, that when you appear before him, the way that the judgment will go at the judgment seat of Christ, and it's not heaven and hell. It's about how did you do in the body with what God gave you? How did you do while you were a Christian on earth? Well, what you find out is he desires for us to be holy and blameless before him in love. That's what he wants. That's what he wants out of our lives. Now, if you want proof of that, we don't have time to cover it today. 
We're going to do a little Sunday school thing after this, about 15 minutes after. If you want to go home, cool, that's fine. Uh, but I will do, like we did last week, a Q&A thing so we can talk more about these issues because they are pretty heavy issues. And if you've got questions, I've read this, what about this first, those types of things. We can totally do that at that time, and we're going to live stream it as well. So we'll wait 15 minutes. We'll do that. It's good. But we can go to Ephesians chapter 5, and it talks about the husband and wife analogy that goes on there, that he might present her before himself, holy, spotless, without wrinkle. Why would Jesus present the body of Christ to himself? Because it happens at a time, the judgment seat of Christ. That's why he does it. It's the same idea how she lives in the body, how we live while in the body on earth amongst the body of Christ. That's what it's talking about. So now we move into the verse that messes us up, verse 5. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of his glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. You say, good grief, that's a lot. Yeah, I, I want to put punctuation in there, but he did But notice it says here, he predestined us to the adoption of sons. Does that sound familiar to you from what we've seen in Romans 8? Doesn't it talk about how we were not given a spirit of fear, but we were given the spirit of adoption so that we would be sons? And if we're sons of of God, then we're heirs, and we will be co-heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him. For the sufferings of this present time are not worth being compared to the glory that would be revealed. Everybody remember this in in chapter 8 of Romans? And it says that the creation is eagerly waiting and longing for a day. And our bodies also, ooh, my neck, my back, my neck and my back, that kind of thing, are waiting for a day. What are we waiting for? The revealing of the adoption of sons, the glorification when it takes place. Notice here, you've been predestined to the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ to himself. He did the work and he is the goal. Notice you haven't been predestined to go to heaven when you die. You've been predestined for a glorious glorification, to participate in the adoption of sons. Does everybody see that? Notice it's not. You've been predestined to heaven. You've been predestined to hell. That's not what it says. Move on to our last example here. Go down to verse 9. As he brings the word up again. He made known to us, Paul and his audience, the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, in Christ, with a view to an administration. Now that word right there is actually the word where we get dispensation from. But the idea is, is there's a stewardship that God has brought in during the church age. And it says here, it's suitable to the fullness of times. And here's what it is. That is the summing up of all things in Christ. In other words, when it's all said and done, when the world is over with, what you're going to find is that Jesus Christ was the chief pinnacle of all things at all times, and all things are summed up in him because all things were created through him and all things have been made for his glory. And he will rule, period. That's the idea. So when it says that, look how he moves on here. Things in the heavens and things on earth. Doesn't matter. Here, there, doesn't matter. They're all summed up in one person, and that's Jesus. He's preeminent. It says here, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been pro horizo, according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. See, he works all things after the counsel of his will. Therefore, he meticulously controls every speck of dust that happens on the face of the earth. That's not what that means. It means that regardless if it's good or bad, it doesn't threaten God. He still wins. That's what it means. 
But notice, we've been predestined to something. Now we've got to find out what that is. So, no, and, and, and here's what Paul does. He'll tell you something. He's very much like me. <laughs> he'll tell you something, and then he'll comma, give you a thought, comma, give you a thought, comma, give you a thought. And then 12 commas later, he finally reveals what he meant at the first. That's called long-windedness in theological terms, okay? But notice also, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end. Stop. We've been predestined to the end. We've been pre-appointed to the end of what? That we who are the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. You and I have been predestined to the praise of his glory. The idea is that our lives would give him praise. The idea is that our lives would give him glory. He has pre-appointed you and I as those who are in Christ to be unto that end. Or let's say it this way. God has set up beforehand that every single person who is in Christ can reach the maximum potential of glorifying Jesus completely. That's what he desires. That's what he set ahead of time. He appointed ahead of time everything that you and I would ever possibly need so that when we stand before the Lord, there is nothing but glory that is given to him through us and how we lived in this world. That's what he's saying. Now, here's what's amazing. That's it. That's all the Bible says about predestination. Here's a really good quote from Harry Ironside. If you know of him, he used to pastor Moody Church in Chicago. You will note that there is no reference in these four verses, and he gives them to you, to heaven or hell, but to Christ-likeness eventually. Everybody see that? He wrote that in 1937. What happened to everybody since then? I guess they didn't pay attention to what he, what he saw, or they didn't pay attention to their Bibles. Notice it says here, nowhere are we told in Scripture that God predestined one man to be saved and another man to be lost. Men are to be saved or lost eternally because of their attitude towards the Lord Jesus Christ. The question is, is have you believed in him? He died for your sins. He doesn't ask you to perform any works to be accepted. The question is, have you responded to that gospel message with faith? But as far as what's been predestined, it is either the death of Christ has been pre-appointed for a time in history to take place, and then those things that are predestined are believers after they are in Christ. And what's been predestined? Our glorification in the many great ways we get to glorify him. That's what it is. So when we deal with this idea of our good friend across the state line here, John Piper, letting people that God is most glorified when people burn in hell forever, and he's also glorified when people are saved because it was what he chose to do and his will always comes about. And yes, God loves everybody and that's what he says in his public will, but he only chose certain people and everybody else is damned without hope and that's actually his secret will. We can sit here and look at that and say, no. I don't care how many books you publish. I don't care how many sermons you've preached. I don't care what title you have. That is heresy. It speaks against the very character of God in loving the world who desires for all men to be saved. I think the Bible's way clearer than sometimes what we hear from preachers. I thought this was an interesting thought. 
I don't think it's off base. In fact, I think he sums it up better than probably I could ever sum it up. Could you throw up the Tozer quote, please? God sovereignly decreed that man should be free to exercise moral choice. And man from the beginning has fulfilled that decree by making his choice between good and evil. When when he chooses to do evil, he does not thereby countervail the sovereign will of God, but fulfills it. Inasmuch as the eternal decree decided not which choice the man should make, but that he should be free to make it. If in his absolute freedom God has willed to give man limited freedom, who is there to say his, who's there to stay his hand or say, What dost thou? Is King James coming through there? Man's free will, or sorry, man's will is free because God is sovereign. A God less than sovereign could not bestow moral freedom upon his creatures. He would be afraid to do so. God isn't afraid to give people freedom. God has already orchestrated all history to bring about the cross of Jesus Christ. God has already had the death of his son take place. God has already shown himself to be triumphant over death by raising him from the grave. Over 500 people saw it. Saw him walk around. He taught for 40 days about the kingdom of God to his disciples, and then they saw him ascend, and angels told him he's going to come back in the same way that he left. We've got enough evidence, enough evidence to convince people. Now, you're saying it's solely their decision? No, I'm saying, again, what I told you at the beginning. The Holy Spirit is actively working to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now. Let's, let's put it all together. Let's wrap it all together. Where does the Holy Spirit dwell? In every believer. So when we are fulfilling the Christ-like mandate that God has pre-appointed for us to fulfill, that we would grow in our understanding, that we would be exercising love so that we would be found holy and blameless before him, that we are experiencing the mature wisdom that God had hidden beforehand but now has been made manifest to those who are growing in their relationship. And we have this Christ-likeness that is taking place in us because Jesus is living his life through us. All of a sudden, you've got this grand testimony of the Holy Spirit shining through every believer that convicts people of their sin and the need for righteousness and the judgment that is to come. You don't think that's true? Try to start a conversation with someone about Christ. But here's what we find. When we respond to the word of God and Jesus begins to take his rightful place through us, people can't sit still. People can't be undecisive. People can no longer say, well, he was just this. He was just there. He was just that. They can't compartmentalize him anymore. And it's not that we're trying extra hard to persuade them by conviction and how I phrase my words. It's none of that self-imposed fleshliness that we put into it. It really is just wanting to love the Lord and grow in him and watch what he does through us. And then you get an opportunity to tell them about the cross. And there it is. Will they believe or will they not believe? God is not threatened by their unbelief, but let's be very clear. It's not like he hasn't made it evident what he's done in order to save them and prove that he loves them. That's where you and I come in. That's where you and I become heralds 
of the message of life. We have got to tell people, guys. We have got to evangelize. We have got to disciple. They go hand in hand. When one is going, the other one's going. But if we find that we're not evangelizing and we're not discipling, there's where our problem is. The spokes are rusty because we haven't bothered to oil it and turn the wheel. That's the problem. We've got to be in those relationships. If you are not in a discipleship relationship with someone right now, come talk to me. I will set you up with somebody. We will make it happen. We will get it working because we all need to be growing in our knowledge of God so that we will begin shining the life of Christ through us so we can fulfill everything that God has pre-appointed for glory. It's that serious. This person's chosen, that person's not chosen. Don't buy into all that. Just read what the Bible says. I think it's pretty clear. Let's pray. God, thank you for our time together. Thank you, God, for the mercy of spelling out clearly what these concepts mean in your word. I pray, Lord, that we would handle when we are approached by other viewpoints, we would handle them well and graciously. But, Father, we would hold fast to what the Bible has clearly said. I pray, God, lay on our hearts these passages. Add them to our understanding. Help us to see the seriousness of all that you desire to do through the believer and that we would no longer say no, that we're too busy. I don't have time to disciple somebody. I'm not going to share the gospel with that person. Father, it's not about us. It's about what you desire to do through us because of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So I pray, God, move our hearts, move our minds, move our bodies to be obedient. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.